noticed a new poster outside the church. More importantly, could you read it? Uh, this is what it says, and for those who are going to listen to this on our landline, and those who listen by tape, I'll spell it out. You need to visualize it if you're somewhere else, okay? Capital D and T, new word, W-O-R, capital E, new word, capital P-R, capital A, new word, N, new word, capital G-O-D-Z, new word, capital P-C, new word, capital W, capital L, new word, capital F, capital L, new word, capital U-R, capital H-R-T. Now, if you're my age and older, you'll probably struggle to understand or make sense of it. And I field tested this on Friday with two members of the congregation who both admitted to being over 60 years old. Eventually, we managed to decipher it, especially as there's a Bible reference underneath. However, almost all of the younger generation will be able to read it fluently. So, all together. If you think you know what it says, read it with me. Don't worry, pray, and God's peace will fill your heart. And hopefully a lot of the younger people passing by Charlotte Chapel will stop and look at it and read it, and especially the bottom of the poster which says, free messaging, no connection charge, anytime, anywhere, chat with God. Now, for those who still don't get it, and are horrified at the debasement of the English language, you need to understand that this is written in what is called text message format. It's used for sending messages by mobile phone. When I renewed my mobile phone contract recently, the young man in the shop tried to persuade me to accept a passage package and he said it's a great package you get 500 free text messages a month I turned it down because when it comes to text messaging I'm all fingers and thumbs well I'm not all fingers and thumbs because it's what you need to write these messages with fingers and thumbs and I also just can't get the hang of predictive text messaging that is you type one letter or two and then it, then it guesses what you're going to say next and it never guesses what I want to say. Now, in the New Testament, I'm going to make it as simple as possible, so in case you're an outsider, you've never been to church in your life, alright? So if it's that simple, just stay focused a moment. In the New Testament part of the Bible, there are 27 books, and 21 of them are letters or messages that were written almost 2,000 years ago. Thirteen of them were written by a man named Paul. And over these next seven months, God willing, in the mornings, we're going to be studying one particular letter he wrote called Philippians. And it's called Philippians because it was written to some people living in the Greek city of Philippi, which Paul visited on one of his journeys around the Mediterranean telling people about Jesus. 
And what I'd like you to do, I know what's happened to the picture there, it's, it's gone strangely funny, but never mind. What I'd like you to do is turn to the, this letter in the Bible. If you've got a Bible, if you haven't got one, just grab one, alright? And it's page 1178. will help to have one, so just grab one or borrow one from someone or whatever. Now, a letter like this is difficult for us to understand. Not just because it was originally written in Greek, and we should get a picture somewhere of what it looks like in Greek. No, we're still struggling with the system. Ah, oh, there you are. For those who read Greek, that's what it looked like originally. Well, it, it didn't look like that. That's a printed version of Greek. Uh, it was written in handwritten Greek originally, of course. But because even in an English translation, it's not written in the way that we write letters. For example, I've chosen an example of one of the many letters and cards that I received following my accident. I know you're getting fed up with me talking about accidents, all right? This may be the last time. Maybe. Okay. I got a letter from a company, and I got a letter from a couple who used to worship with us. I don't think they'll mind me sharing it with you. But look at what the, a letter looks like, a normal sort of English letter. Uh, you'll see it's headed with the address of the sender and the date. Then it begins by addressing us, dear Peter and Nita. Then there's a message saying how sorry they were to her about the accident. And the dotted lines means there's some personal bits I've not included. And finally... There's an assurance of good wishes. And at last, on the bottom, if you don't know the address, you learn who sent it. That's a normal English letter, yes? Now, in the first century, people didn't write letters that way. Look at the opening verses of Philippians chapter 1. First of all, there is no address from where it was sent, and there's no date when it was written. If there had been, then quite a few New Testament scholars would have been out of business and it would have saved several forests of trees which have been pulled for paper to write about these questions. However, in summary, most people agree that this letter was written about 60 AD by our later dating, of course, and probably from the city of Rome. Notice the letter begins with the name of the senders, Paul and Timothy, you don't have, this is the advantage writing letters in Greek. You don't have to wait till the end of the letter and turn over to discover who wrote it to you. You get that first, alright? Next, you get the people to whom it's written, to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. And this then is followed by a greeting Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what follows in the next four chapters, if you've got the book open in front of you, and the chapters and verses weren't, of course, original. They were added later to help you with references so you can say, look at chapter 3, verse 8, or so on, all right? And finally, if you turn over in your Bibles, right at the end, there's a closing greeting. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, look again at the opening section, the first verses that we're going to focus on this morning. Although it's written in the normal letter style, 
what is actually written in these opening verses is actually quite surprising. If it had been written with predictive text, you'd expect it to begin with St. Paul. But it doesn't. The writer Paul calls himself and Timothy, his colleague, servants. And he addresses the people who live in Philippi that he's writing to as saints. And not just some of them, but all of them. So, why does he use these two terms, servants and saints, in this particular way? That's what I want us to look at as we begin our studies in the book of Philippians this morning. Our series, Shining Like Stars, this morning we're going to look at saints and servants. Philippians 1, 1 to 2, which you've got in front of you. And if you forget everything else that I've said this morning, let me summarize it by saying this. If we are Christians this morning, and I'll explain what that means, if we are true Christians, then we are all saints and we are all servants. We are all saints, we are all servants. So let's start with all saints which has nothing to do with any singing group, all right? A recent news item declared, saint-making Pope is ready to ditch the miracle clause. Candidates for sainthood will be exonerated from the requirement to have performed a miracle under guidelines being considered by the Pope. And it goes on to say, already under fire for, from some Roman Catholics for running a saint factory, the Pope is preparing to overturn a centuries-old tradition that candidates for canonization must have performed medically inexplicable posthumous miracles. In other words, you've got to have done a miracle after you've died, all right? The Pope, aged 84, has created 482 saints in his 26 years as pontiff, more than all his predecessors put together. Well, he may have created 482 saints who have died, but if we accept the New Testament definition of the word saint, there are probably at least that number of living saints here in Charlotte Chapel this morning. So, what are saints? The word literally means holy ones, H-O-L-Y, ones. And the Greek word holy and its Hebrew counterpart in the Old Testament part of the Bible means separate or apart. One writer says the idea the words express is belonging to a different order of things, living in a different sphere. The word holy is the one word which summarizes what God is like. It's descriptive of God. When Isaiah the prophet saw God, the Lord, high and lifted up in the temple, we read in Isaiah chapter 6, he heard the seraphim flying around and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, amazingly, it is this word that the New Testament then uses 
to describe human beings. Holy ones. God's saints living in Philippi and in places such as Rome, Romans 1 verse 7, or Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, and Ephesus, Ephesians 1 verse 1. They are holy ones. It is descriptive of God's people. Now, by what right can such people be called saints? Are they special people who have performed miracles? Or are particularly virtuous? Or especially worthy? So that they've been chosen to receive this accolade in God's birthday honours list? Not at all. Look, for example, at the kind of people who were saints in Philippi, which we heard from the young people when they read the story of what happened when Paul visited this city on his missionary journey. And you will see there is a great diversity of people. First of all, there is a woman named Lydia, a very wealthy businesswoman. She dealt in the exclusive trade of cloth dyed in purple, which was only available to people who could afford it, like kings and governors. And this cloth came from her hometown, miles away in the Roman province of Asia, in a town called Thyatira. In fact, many people believe that Lydia was not her name, but her trade name. She was the Lydia lady. You know, like the Tupperware lady? Well, only a much higher class, all right. So here's the first saint, a rich businesswoman. Now, perhaps that's not such a surprise because we read that she was a religious woman who met with other women by the river Gangetes outside Philippi for prayer. But the second saint is very different. An unnamed slave girl who probably came from Greece itself, a local, she was possessed by a demonic spirit and had the power through that to predict the future. One that her owners used to make a lot of money. So, Here's a young slave girl. And the third person is very different again. Should we think that saints are limited to women? We have a man, a tough man at that, a retired Roman centurion who had settled in Philippi, which was a Roman colony town, and he ran the city jail. A retired Roman centurion. Now what do they have in common that qualifies them to be called saints? Male and female, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, Greek and Roman. What do they have in common that qualifies these people to be called saints? Nothing except a personal faith in Christ Jesus. Look again at the opening of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Look what it says. It's addressed to all the saints in Christ Jesus. When Paul and his party arrived in Philippi, they proclaimed the good news about Jesus, that he was crucified for sinful and holy people, and that God raised him through the, from the dead, so that those who acknowledge Jesus as their Saviour and Lord can be forgiven. And Lydia, the Roman centurion, and almost certainly the slave girl, plus many others in Philippi, put their faith in Jesus when they received this message. And now, by virtue of that, in Christ Jesus, they are all saints. In Christ Jesus, 
and Paul uses this phrase many times in his letters, it refers to status. It means in union with Christ Jesus. I'm trying to think of an illustration. Here's one, and don't push it to its limits, alright? Supposing that there is an incredibly wealthy man, a multi-millionaire, Mr. A. And there is an extremely destitute young woman, poor as a church mouse, Miss B. Supposing that Mr. A woos Miss B and asks her to marry him. And at the wedding service he says, All that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. Now, sometime later, you're walking down the street with a friend, and over the road you see her, and you say to your friend, Look, there's poor Miss B. And your friend says, No, she's not. She's now rich, Mrs. A. By virtue of what? Her union with Mr. A. Now, it's a flawed illustration, all right? Don't tackle me at the door about it, all right? But not in one point. To those, especially poor women, who say that such things don't ever happen, there is something far more astounding that a holy God should love unholy, sinful people so much that He sent His Son into the world to pay the price they could never pay for all their wrongdoing and to make them holy to make them His people to make them saints the Pope doesn't make saints God makes saints and that is why in verse 2 Paul says to these saints speaks about God's gifts to his saints he says grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in normal Greek of the day, the normal greeting, which was sort of, you know, good wishes, was a Greek word, karain. Paul changes it and uses a slightly different word. The predictive text would definitely have got this wrong. All right? He uses the word charis. Usually translated grace. George Mitchell, in his book on Philippians, Chained and Cheerful, says, grace is a sunshine word kind of grip me that grace is a sunshine word grace is God's incredible favour shown to people who don't deserve it we used to say that grace is when I was in Sunday school G-R-A-C-E God's riches at Christ's expense So Paul writes in another letter to the Christians in Corinth, for you know, think of my illustration again, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Do you get it? Do you know it? The second word, peace, has a negative and a positive aspect. Negatively, it means the absence of conflict. Peace is what comes after war. And for the Christian, the war with God is ended, our rebellion against him, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul again, writing to another church in Rome, says, Therefore, since we have been put right with God, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but it has a positive aspect as well. It means the well-being of the whole person. There's a Hebrew word that summarizes it. It's the word shalom. It is that word in the text message that we read at the beginning from Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, notice peace with God, peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, all who are in Christ Jesus, if you are in union with Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Him as your Saviour and your Lord, are saints. You know, the New Testament only uses the word Christians to describe these people three times in the whole New Testament. It uses the word saints over 60 times. But note one other thing. The word is always plural. There is no reference in the New Testament to St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, or St. Barnabas, or anybody else. It's a collective term used to describe God's holy people, to describe a local church, the saints in Philippi, the saints in Charlotte Chapel, the saints in Bellevue Chapel, the saints in Caribbean Christian Centre, the saints in Palmerston Church of Scotland, the saints in St. Paul's and St. George's. It's a gathering of people who are in Christ Jesus. It is addressed to God's people in the plural. However, should we think that the word saints only applies to, refers to status, what God has made us, it also refers to our calling. Saints are called to be holy. Another New Testament letter written by Peter. As obedient children, he says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, notice it's the same word, agios, the words for holy, saints. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Where is it written? It's written in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. It's written to God's people Israel, who were called to be holy. Be different. You're God's special people. Be distinctive from the rest. It's now applied to God's new covenant people. But we have this added great advantage. We have the Holy Spirit living in us and the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. To make us like Jesus. So that we bear the family likeness. But as we saw last week, because God is at work in us, we must cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit by yielding our lives to Him in every area of our lives so that increasingly we become holy. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. If you were here last week, this is what we focused on. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to act according to His good purpose. And the result of all this is that we become holy, distinctive, different from the rest as a community, as well as individuals. So our verse for the year, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which, what? You shine like stars in the universe. You stand out. You're bright. You're different set apart from the crooked and depraved generation in which you live. That's the great challenge, isn't it? 
when people get to know, if they come into Charlotte Chapel, I don't mean just into a church building like this, but when they get to know this fellowship, do people say, there's something different about your relationships with one another that I've not found anywhere else. I belong to so-and-so club and I go to so-and-so gym and I belong to this association, but there's something different about this. You're all such a different crowd of people. I mean, look around at Charlotte Chapel. There's young and old, there's rich and poor, there's clever and not so clever. And, you know, you, it's this great diversity of people. What is it that unites us? that we're in Christ Jesus. But are we distinctive? Are we different? This letter is earthed in Philippi. It is to the saints, not in heaven, not the posthumous saints who've gone. It's addressed to the saints in Philippi, the saints in Edinburgh. Now before we move on from this, and my time is going, so is my voice this morning, let me ask a question. Are we all saints here this morning? A former missionary colleague I work with sends out a regular newsletter and he always begins the address by writing Dear Saints and Ain'ts. He's got a strange sense of humour, right? But this morning, this congregation is composed of saints and ain'ts. And I want to say to you this morning, to tell you this morning, if you're an ain't, you can become a saint. This is a remarkable thing. You could have walked in off the street this morning as an ain't and you can go out the door as a saint. There is no virtue or pedigree or background or intelligence which will qualify you for this, nor is there any lack of virtue, pedigree or background which will disqualify you from becoming a saint. No. You come to Jesus Christ as you are admitting your need, confessing your sin, turning from that old way of life, the Bible calls it repentance, and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And then you are in Christ Jesus and you become one of the saints, not the ain'ts. Now, if you do that, you may ask, is that it? Can I then go out basking in my sainthood? Not at all. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Philippians, Alec Matea writes, great though our privileges are, they are not to be equated with dressing gown and slippers. They have staff and shoes for pilgrimage, armour for battle and a plough for the field. And that is why Paul's letter to the Philippians reminds us not only are we all saints, but, and this will be more brief, we are also all servants. The word saints is the description of these people in Philippi. It's not the only surprising term that Paul uses. He also describes himself and Timothy as servants. And the expression is even stronger than the English word servant. It doesn't mean a hired help. It literally means a slave. Someone who literally belonged to a master, part of his property, along with his hose and his horses. A slave is someone who is fully at the disposal of someone else. Now the Roman Empire knew all about slaves. It was a very negative experience to be a slave the Roman Empire was run and maintained by millions of slaves. In fact, on one occasion, the Roman Senate debated in their parliament whether they should get all the slaves in the empire to wear the same clothes so you could identify who was a slave and who was not. They voted against it for one reason, because they realised that when the slaves realised how many millions of them they were and how much they out, outnumbered their masters, they'd probably rise up in rebellion. And though they were good and bad masters, some masters would kill you at, their, at a whim. Whoever you were, if you were a slave, your prospects were poor. And if you had any children, they became slaves as well. 
So, for Paul to use this term as a description of himself and Timothy is very striking, even more so given Paul's background. He was a man of great intelligence and ability, with an outstanding political and religious pedigree, both a Roman citizen and a Pharisee, the religious elite in Israel. You can read his description of his background in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. But Paul uses this term of himself, and he also uses the same term of Timothy who he writes later in this letter, served or slave with him in the work of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me. This is the verb from the word to slave. He slaved with me in the work of the gospel. So why does Paul use this term to describe himself and Timothy? Why does he not, as in other letters, claim to be an apostle? Well, Part of the reason is that the Philippians and Paul were on very good terms. It's one of the most wonderful and warm letters we'll see that he wrote, probably the most warm letter that he wrote. He didn't need to prove that. But there is another reason. He is making the point, which we'll emphasize later in this letter, that the role of a servant or slave is one which should be adopted by every believer because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice, all the saints in Christ Jesus are also all servants of Christ Jesus. Why should you do this? You might say, well, that's a pretty demeaning role to be a slave. Are you telling me as a Christian? We do it because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So we come, eventually we'll come to it, God willing, to the great hymn in chapter 2. Notice how it starts though. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave. And being found in human likeness, and being, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the point is clear. If Jesus was prepared to become a slave for us, we should be prepared to be his slaves in order to demonstrate his life and his character and his attitude within our community, within our local church. And although the Philippians had much to commend them, this was an issue that needed addressing in their church. Some of them were falling out with one another. Two key women in the church who had labored with Paul in the work of preaching the good news of Jesus had fallen out with one another. And such things are sadly all too common in our churches today. Once we begin to think that we're better than another Christian, or to look down on another Christian, or to think we have more status than another Christian, we are in trouble. What we need to do is to remember that all the saints are to be servants, even those God has placed in leadership in a local church. Notice the opening greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, together with the overseers and deacons. Overseers are those responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church. The other term the Bible uses is elders. It's the same, word, same concept, overseers, elders. They're responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church. Deacons are those responsible for the practical administration of the church fellowship. And they are leaders. Every church needs leaders. We'll be voting in elders and deacons, God willing, later this year in this church. But we are not just leaders. We are servant leaders. And that is the difference from the way the world operates. 
We don't use our leadership to impose ourselves on other people. We use our leadership in order to serve and demonstrate the character of Jesus Christ. We are not a separate breed from the rest of the saints. Notice the New Testament no longer talks about a separate breed of of priests who have special access to God above the rest. We are all priests as well. We equally have access because we all come to the level ground of the cross. And once we stray from this, then our unity is broken. And we get hierarchies and cliques and people falling out with one another. The brightness of our witness as stars in the universe is dimmed and even extinguished. The only antidote is to remember that we are all servant slaves. In the NIV application commentary on Philippians, which I'd recommend, and I think it's still half price in Wesley on sale, the antidote to this unity, Frank Tillman writes, the most effective way to achieve unity is not to demand that everyone agree with us, but to look out for the interests of others and to refuse to claim for ourselves the privileges that rightfully belong to us. Always remember, if you are a saint, you are also a servant. Almost finished. I began with a text message, so I'll finish with one that I wrote myself. There's a thing on the internet where you can look at how to transcribe ordinary writing into text messaging. I'll give you the address if you want to know how to use it. Okay, it's a very easy one. Here it comes. Capital R, capital U, new word, F, R, capital E. And I'm sure everyone can read it. Are you free? Are you free from a life of slavery to sin? You see, if you're not a slave of Jesus Christ, there is only one other alternative. You're a slave to sin and sinful habits. And only Jesus Christ can set you free. Bob Dylan memorably once sang, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. So, are you free? Has Jesus Christ set you free? Or are you a slave to sin? This morning you need to come to him if you're still a slave to sin. Because Jesus said, the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But are you free, available, willing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you at his disposal, ready to do anything he might ask you? Even the lowliest of tasks that no one else wants to do and no one else will see. say, why should I do that? Because it's an enormous privilege to be a slave of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was prepared to discard all his privileges and he said, I count them as rubbish compared with the great privilege of knowing Jesus Christ and also of serving Jesus Christ. Are you free? I hope so in both senses. Let's pray together.